Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. Hello again, everyone. It's Charles Marshall here on the second edition of the West Coast version of the Neil Garfield Show. And it is Thursday, August 24th, 2017. Good afternoon for those in the Western time zones and good evening to those in the East. Eric Maines is returning tonight along with Bill Padalo, and they both join us to discuss by Eric uh, by Eric's analysis he's going to be discussing how to write a FOIA request particularly uh, to state attorneys general and why it's important to follow up from consent orders that relate to that and there's probably going to be a discussion of the Chase-Washington Mutual intersection, both related to that first topic and expanding upon it. And Bill is our resident expert on that, and we'll have much to weigh in on there. I am broadcasting live from San Diego, California, and this show is brought to you by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, Lending Lies, and the Garfield Firm with offices in South Florida. Uh, This show is especially brought to you because of donations to the Living Lies blog from listeners like you. Thank you. And for those of you who are not contributors, we ask that you hit the donate button on the blog or call 202-838-6345, which is the main number for that. And do pledge whatever you think you can afford. If this show has value for you, then please make a contribution, and that will, uh, that will help both Neil and myself continue to host and present these important financial shows. Uh, welcome, Eric and Bill. Thanks, Charles. How are you doing, Charles? Uh, doing great. Uh, so, Eric, why don't we uh, start right off with your insights and analysis on how we can use state FOIA requests to advance the borrower's interest so that you know our, our listeners out there in uh, podcast radio land can possibly pick up some tips that they can employ themselves. All right, and I'll try to keep uh, aware of the time here and just get right into it. Um, 
Now, I want to quickly kind of start where we left off last time because I was focusing fairly uh, specifically with the LPS consent judgment. And one of the things I wanted to make the listeners aware of as to why that is relevant to them, at the time that the consent judgment was formally executed in January 2013, in that period of 2011 through 2013, Early 2013, it's estimated that LPS's uh, desktop software was responsible for roughly 80% of the foreclosures, i.e. being responsible. I mean that the attorneys were using that specific software program and LPS's services to process their foreclosures. So there was a wide use of this, and you have a consent judgment out there, and Real quickly, in, in getting into the uh, the FOIA realm, I'm like, when you've got somebody that involved with that many foreclosures, it becomes very relevant, no matter who your lender was or who the bank was that was involved. If they were using LPS software, there's a, there's a there's a good chance that they were uh, doing a FOIA request or trying to find out more about it could be advantageous. The only way to find out is to delve more deeply. Now, one thing with the LPS that we, as we were discussing last time, is the consent judgment was very broad. It involved the attorneys very specifically in the consent judgment, as well as the issue of robo-signing. The problem was with LPS is that the attorneys were so ingrained in the process, i.e. LPS went out retained the attorneys on behalf of the servicers, but they would send out these huge broadcasts saying foreclosure, you know, XXX available. You have so many hours to respond. If you want it, please respond. And they were basically acting as the capture agent for the servicers to use their software uh, platform and be retained for these cases. And the attorney generals found that they became so ingrained in this process that they had to, they were actually interfering with the attorney-client relationship, and not allowing the attorneys to contact their client, i.e., the banks and the servicers. And he said, "Hey, you got to cut this out." Now, the advantage to that, when we're looking at the issue of robo-signing and potentially fraud and forgery, which really is what robo-signing is, the unauthorized signatures of people signing documents, you you've got a group of attorneys that can't readily say, "Hey." We were only aware of the issues that involved us as attorneys with LPS, not of the robo-signing. You can't really get away with it, as I'm sure you can You can kind of realize, Charles, if, you have, if something is specifically tailored to an attorney in, in a consent judgment, they can't really claim ignorance of the rest of the consent judgment, especially when it was required of LPS and folks using their software to make their third parties aware that, hey, we had this robo-signing and unauthorized signatures going on. And we actually have a specific group of people we need to notify and make them aware of it. All that being said, as I, as I got into doing the uh, FOIA request, the FOIA request in most part in most states, and of course I don't have experience with all 50 states in writing a FOIA request. They're under different names. They're normally uh, included within the state statutory code of how to do uh, – a request of under a, a FOIA type statute, they'll have different names to them. Uh, in Indiana, it's a public disclosure act that they have, but in right. most circumstances, it's a simple thing to do. I mean, you're talking 
uh, something that in, in most cases is going to cost you less than five bucks to do. You can do it in person. You can do it by mail. You can do it by fax. But all it, most of these statutes are fairly similar. And all that's required is that you send a notice, whether it's to the state attorney general. And, and by the way, Charles, I should mention I have an example of the one that I wrote to the Indiana State AG, and I believe that will be posted at some point here in the very near future on, uh, on the Living Lives website. So people will have an example to go from. But it's just as e- easy to Excellent. Google examples of, of, of FOIAs. I mean, this is not a difficult thing to do, again. And it's a cheap thing to do that can be very effective. But you just use a format saying, I'm requesting information, and you can write it. You want to be specific enough so that it's effective, but broad enough so that you catch all areas. In my case, what I requested of the state AG was, I want to know about this consent judgment. And I knew from the consent judgment that they were to be receiving quarterly compliance reports from LPS as to what they were doing to comply with the consent judgment. So I asked the the attorney general, I said, how many people uh, were affected by the consent judgment? I want information relating to that, the amounts of settlements, the amounts of monies paid out. I want to see copies of the consent, the quarterly reports of the consent judgment, because obviously if you don't know how a company is supposed to comply with a consent judgment, or what they're doing to comply with it, how do you know that they're doing anything? And in my case, since we have 50 separate state attorney generals that have signed off on this LPS uh, consent judgment, uh, I have a sneaking suspicion there are a lot of them, as it appears to be with the state of Indiana, that simply accepted the settlement amounts of monies and the millions of dollars that LPS offered them and did nothing to follow up on this consent judgment. took the money and said, thank you very much. And whatever they got in terms of, yes, we are uh, complying with this consent judgment is questionable because all they would provide me information on was basically, here's the cover cover letters to the uh, quarterly compliance reports and a copy of the consent judgment. But anyway, go ahead. Sure, Eric. Uh, Let me ask you this. Um, What's your impression on how wide and broad this consent judgment could be used. In other words, if a given borrower there with their servicer, whoever that is, how likely do you think it is that a given servicer will be in some way under the legal authority of this consent judgment so that it would make sense for a given borrower to pursue this? In other words, what would be the intersection between this particular consent judgment and a, and a given servicer, you know, out there in the broad land? Sure. Uh, and, and just to finish up my thought, which I got off track there with, which is, you know, writing the FOIAs, and I'll answer that question that you just asked me. Uh, as sure. I said, there's, there's forms out there for FOI requests. They're very simple and cheap to write. And it takes a short period of time to fill them in and send them to your state AG or whatever agency. Uh, I'm just specifically mentioning, and I've been specifically concentrating on this LPS one, because it is a opportunity that hasn't been there before. Most of these FIA requests go to the Fed government, uh, whereas with the LPS consent judgment, 50 state separate state AGs, 
and you got 50 shots getting answers out of this, and you're not going to find, I think, 50 separate state courts that are all going to be willing to go, you cannot blanket say we're not going to release any information to this consent judgment. But the FOIAs, again, are standard pretty much canned forms. Make them, again, specific enough to get the information you want, but broad enough to cover a lot of areas. And you are required to get a response back in most states within a short period of time, uh, usually in under 30 days. And they can be very effective because, again, once you get a response back, that will tell you they will have to answer what they do and don't have available and what they will or will not be willing to answer. And that's the start of your roadmap to either, if they refuse to answer something, filing the suit in state court to follow up on that and going to a state court judge to force them to release information or using that as a roadmap where they can do some ahas as to here's what they have and here's what they're willing to release. And you kind of work your way up the thing. So that being said, getting to a question you just asked me, the, re- the intersection with specifically the LPS uh, Black Knight, uh, that's what they're called now, Black Knight, the LPS consent judgment comes in because that consent judgment specifically directed and included third parties. Remember that the servicers and banks retained LPS and used their software and had LPS go out and find attorneys for them. They basically said, LPS, you go out and find the attorneys for us. And we're, the banks and the services were aware that they were using LPS software. And the consent judgment said, LPS, you specifically have to remediate the robo-signing and forgeries done. And they had a specific period for some of the uh, robo-signing that was done. It was between 2008 and 2010, which included the assignment in my case. But it also obligated them to notify the folks affected and to remediate the the robo-signing that went on. So if you had an attorney, and there's a lot of people that are in this situation where they may have had these start-and-stop foreclosures. The foreclosure started in 2008, 2010, 2011, 2012, what have you, that have assignments from 2008 to 2010 or later that may have been subject to this robo-signing. It's not just the consent judgments that they had to remediate the 2008 to 2010 robo-signings but it doesn't stop at that. So it's not just limited to that. You've got other robo-signing that went on broadly and widely with LPS, and it didn't just involve Linda Green. Uh, if you look at Lynn Sismoniak's uh, Kaitam lawsuit, she had a list, an entire list of people in there that she listed as robo-signers. And a lot of people may not be aware when they, they go through and look at, if they look at Lynn Sismoniak's lawsuit, which I highly recommend that they do, they're going to find a list of people in there that may be on their assignments. So uh, in, in terms of, well, where's that intersection again, Tom? I know I'm being a bit long-winded on this, but I wanted to give you the background on it. If that was good information. The attorney, if the attorneys knowingly, like they did in my case, went in front of a judge when they know because of this consent judgment, and they are third parties in this, as well as the servicers, that they have forged documents that need to be remediated. And there was a consent judgment in place controlling these robo-signings. And they move forward with a 
foreclosure anyway, I mean, you can see the problem and the liability right there. That's fraud on the court. That's moving forward with something you know has been robo-signed or unauthorized to be used, and you move forward with a lawsuit regardless. And the attorneys, again, can't say they aren't aware of this because if they used LPS, and if LPS retained them, and one of the things I am, am looking to get in discovery is I want to see a copy of that contract between LPS and the attorney. What did it say about rights and responsibilities? And some of this may come out in the FOIAs, too. What were the attorney's responsibilities, rights under their uh, contracts with LPS, and what should they have known? Because if the attorneys proceeded with these suits, and again, for the listeners out there who have stop-start lawsuits that have been going on for you know, four, five, six, seven, eight years where they still are using documents and assignments from, you know, anywhere from five to eight years ago that have never been remediated. This is very germane to your case, especially if the LPS desktop software was used. These FOIA cases can be used to start cracking a shell on that. And one point I want to make is that this is a unique opportunity with the LPS consent judgment because, again, a lot of these FOI uh, requests are falling in deaf ears because they're going to state, I mean, excuse me, federal regulatory agencies and to the federal government. And they're all blanket claiming, well, we've got attorney-client privilege. It is an incredibly tough thing to break the federal shell. What's unique about the LPS consent judgment is, again, 50 separate state attorney generals that signed off on this consent judgment. It's meant for the public good. It is, in fact, meant for the public and says specifically in the consent judgment that the public has a private right, a private right to causes of action uh, that they have, that they can bring based on the conduct within the consent judgment. And it's going to be very hard for a state court judge if they all, all of a sudden start getting piled on with 50 separate state, separate state uh, FOI requests getting them to rubber stamp an agent's office saying everything about this is confidential or attorney-client. And if we can crack the shell on this one, that starts cracking the shell on a wider basis with these FOIA requests because then you have precedent. Then you can go into other courts and say, listen, this stuff wasn't confidential on the state level in the LPS consent judgment, uh, and in the courts have ruled in XXX state that we can access this information. And, and of course, you're aware, Charles, you got to start setting that precedent. And once you start cracking the shell and unraveling things like that, and the information starts coming out, that's when you get the ball rolling. Right. And you also have to use discovery, the discovery process during a lawsuit to expose the presence of LPS and Black Knight. And, and again, I'll ask you something mainly with the backdrop of, of listeners who, for whom this area is still pretty new. Um, LPS Black Knight. Now, is it the servicers who are hiring, you know, slash coordinating directly with these software platform providers? You know, of course, they're they're using it to streamline everything they do and and sort of hyper accelerate the volume of their foreclosures. Or is it the attorneys who are streamlining their own processes? Or is it both who are essentially retaining LPS Black Knight to essentially vastly uh, 
essentially illegally get around declaration rules to, to put their foreclosure processes on, on overdrive. In other words, uh, is it both the law firms and the servicers who are hiring LPS Black Knight? What's your take on that? Well, LPS Black Knight was instrumental in retaining them, and I want to give Bill some time here, so I just want to wrap up a few things. It was LPS Black Knight at that time through 2008 through 2013, the time of that consent judgment, integrally involved with retaining the attorneys because you have to remember when somebody defaulted, who did they default with? Whoever was servicing the loan and whoever is claiming to hold that loan as the creditor. You know, we've got a lot of securitized trust claiming that status, which is dubious. We've got the banks that were involved acting as quote unquote servicers, but where did the ball start rolling? It started rolling with the servicers and the banks or the, you know, claimed trust. And what did they do? I mean, they had to get a hold of somebody. They had to have retained LPS or the attorneys would never have been contacted, correct? So they had to reach out to LPS, say, we want to use you as a service provider to find us attorneys, which is what LPS was doing. And that's in the consent judgment. And the attorneys were contacted by LPS, and, and they used LPS's platform. Uh, now, the servicers may have had, I, and this is what we don't know, and what we have to have OIA, we have to get a little bit more in-depth information on exactly the triangle between the servicers, LPS, and the attorneys, but it was definitely LPS heavily involved with directing the attorneys and you know, telling them what to do because that's what the consent judgment says. You're getting too involved with the attorneys directing and telling them what to do, and you're obstructing their contact with the servicers. So we know they were integrally involved in doing this and that they were involved in routine attorneys and directing them. Well, I, yes, I my think it's understanding... Critical. Go ahead, Bill. Oh, um, well, one, one of my understandings is that when they set this up back during that time period, um, they called it actually the LPS Attorney Network, and they obviously planned ahead and uh, went out and solicited certain law firms that wanted to stake uh, certain territories. You know, so for example, uh, one of the foreclosure mills in the whole entire Montana state uh, at the time, who was running all foreclosures, was Makoff Kellogg out of Dickinson, North Dakota. They were a firm that was a LPS attorney network firm, um, and so there were lists. And you could go and you could find uh, the, that every territory in the U.S. was covered by uh, uh, law firms that wanted to stake uh, claim and have proprietary uh, or territorial rights, you should say, uh, working directly with LPS on the referrals uh, side of it. So uh, even in non-judicial states or whatnot, these referrals would come in um, on the computer through the LPS desktop system. And again, they, uh, one of the things they got slapped with was they were uh, having to, uh, they were graded on how fast they would respond. It was all about expediency and how quickly they could get these documents whipped out and in the, in the foreclosure action in place. So um, a question, though, that I want to ask you, Eric, is, uh, so it's clear to the listeners, is that this time period of which the consent judgment uh, uh talks about in terms of remediation on these assignments that occurred primarily during that period of 08 to 10. If the damage had been done when this thing was signed in 13 and foreclosures had occurred or whatnot, were they mandated by this consent judgment to remediate and go back 
on properties that had already been either a judgment was obtained or foreclosure had already occurred where they mandated to go back and and remediate and address uh, the damages that were may, may have been caused uh, as a result? I don't know that that it, on the properties that were foreclosed on that they were mandated to do anything, but obviously, as, as both you and Charles are aware, because that pointed out and listed in the consent judgment, their stipulated to conduct, which was robo-signing, and that these signatures were unauthorized, then you have a private cause of action because you can go back under the theory of fraud and fraud on the court under, you know, normally it's a 10-year statute of limitations and say, Your Honor, we found out that this was an LPS, you know, assisted signature. And if you have enough evidence there to get to discovery of evidence that one of the individuals involved in that foreclosure was an unauthorized signer and LPS was involved, the consent judgment specifically says you have a right, a private right of cause of action against LPS because guess what? They facilitated a fraud on the court and a foreclosure of your home using unauthorized signatures, i.e. fraud. So that should give you a right, uh, regardless of the consent judgment, which already says you can bring a private cause of action. Well, yeah, and these documents, uh, you know, remain in the public record. Uh, They recorded them. They're on title and the chain of title to these properties. And you would think that one of the remediation uh, issues that would have been easy to address would be to go back and retract. They they have good documentation of just how many millions of I was estimated I think two million coming out of LPS stock X for example that these were polluted in the chain of titles to properties all over the country that they could go back in and simply uh, do corrective assignments or remove those assignments and these documents from the county records and that is simply something that clearly they have not done. If it hasn't been brought up by a homeowner or it hasn't been brought up in a litigation uh, or anything of that nature, then they're just leaving it alone and and letting this stuff sit there and continue to pollute the public record, land records. And and one thing I I want to quickly mention. I was just going to say they've shifted the burden. Right. They've shifted the burden back to the borrower, basically. Yes, the borrower can bring a private right of action, but meanwhile... All the all all these bad, uh, you know, county records are still out there. Sure, go ahead, Eric. Uh, one thing I wanted that's very important. I want to quickly mention is the public needs to be aware that the quarterly the follow up on this is still active. Number one, the quarterly consent judgments and the follow up by the attorney generals is still active and it's slated to go through January thirty first of two thousand and eighteen. So we still have a window here where the AGs have full right to get access to LPS records under that that consent judgment and go after them. So if you can get to the AGs and, in this case, force them to do something, the window is still open to do that. And they're still – this is effective, again, through January of uh, 2018. So the window's there. That's why time is of the essence here to really hit the AGs hard because they can't deny they didn't follow up on this stuff or aren't aware of it. And this is, again, where this can be effective, where it's not effective with the federal government regulatory agencies. You've got this consent judgment, and if you get the FOIs, FOIs out there in the information and shove this right in the AG's face like I'm doing, they're going to have to react. They're going to have to do something because the, 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 the sheer public reaction, embarrassment, political cost, professional cost, uh, when you think about it, Mike Pence, who is now vice president, was governor 
when this thing was enacted under his AG, Kamala Harris was in the Senate. This was enacted under her when she was an AG. It's time to start hitting these guys and hitting them hard on this because they can't hide from it. Absolutely. And as you indicated, there's still four months left, which is not a lot of time, but it's enough time to really get some action going uh, on this, on this, on this situation. And and I didn't have a chance to bring up, and maybe it's for a future show, but I had uh, out on uh, quickly on, on my Twitter account out there, I was involved with one West and their reverse mortgage program. It was under financial freedom. It was called the Heckam program. And I was aware and was in the group at the FDIC that was aware that financial freedom was going back and finding people who were involved in mortgage brokering to get them to sign documents years after the documents uh, had started in the foreclosure process where they hadn't been signed. And we had the servicing records and it was right there in front of us that they were doing this. So you can look at my Twitter account and read all about it, but I, that'll have to be for a future show to go into what I was aware of when I was at the FDIC and what was going on with that. Another oh, area of FOI. Yeah, I, I look forward to having you back on to discuss that. And then Bill, if you could, uh, give your contact information to the listeners so that they could contact you about this or any other issue that you involve yourself with, uh, particularly the, uh, the loan document analysis that you do. I think it, it well intersects with our topic today. Sure. Well, thank you. Um, my phone is, is 406-328-4075. Uh, best way to reach me is via email, which is my first name, bill.bpia at gmail.com. All right, excellent. And we will be back again for the West Coast show. Uh, Charles Marshall here again, and we will be back within a couple of weeks. And I will be back. Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show for free information and advice and visit our blog daily at The Living Lines Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information concerning Neil, the team at Living Lies, or the law firm, go to www.livinglies.wordpress.com or call...